The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Well, hello once again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Todd Bloniars, and you may know me, of course, as the longtime producer and host of the Time Out for Sports Talk TV show that you can find on BMC channels 8, 9, 28, and 29, and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. And when we do our live shows, you can also find our show streaming uh, at the same belmontmedia.org website. Uh, of course, you can also access, uh, just to let you know about our, our podcasts here, you can access any of our TOST podcasts online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts and also at soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. And the SoundCloud app is available for download and is free of charge, free apps. I know everyone loves those. Uh, it's available free on both iTunes and Google Play stores. Well, when I originally started uh, doing these uh, Toddcasts, one of the had a couple different purposes in mind. One was to reach out to former guests of our uh, TV show, folks who've moved out of the Belmont area where we record uh, these shows, and uh, get a chance to reconnect through the phone line. Uh, great thing with these kind of radio-like uh, podcasts. And so that's one way I've uh, kind of approached these. Another one is to... Uh, Basically, go out and try to uh, discover emerging talent in the uh, the vast world of uh, sports media and uh, or just uh, the sports world in general, and uh, that's uh, kind of uh, the uh, the focus of our uh, guest tonight. Uh, first time guest, first time I'm uh, talking to him. I get the opportunity to do that here. Uh, he is uh, yeah, a uh, writer and editor. Uh, working at both the Comeback and Awful Announcing, a couple of websites that if you follow sports, particularly sports media at all, you probably are familiar with those sites. Uh, he's also, though, uh, written for uh, The Atlantic, MLB.com, SI.com. Uh, that would be Sports Illustrated, yes. Uh, Vice Sports, Hartford Current, Baseball Prospectus. Uh, he is uh, Alex Putterman uh, from AwfulAnnouncing.com, uh, specifically where I uh, first discovered uh, his work. And uh, Alex, uh, hello, welcome, uh, welcome to the Toddcast. Thanks for having me. I am uh, excited, excited to be on, and I'm excited to be called Emerging Talent. That is a <laughs> nice compliment. Thank you. Well, well, no problem. And the reason I, I say that, Alex, is because uh, you know, and uh, kind of try to prepare for this, and uh, you know, knowing you only by what I've read, I had to I did a little more online digging. And actually, based on my day job, I do a little bit of investigating in, in my regular day job, which does not have anything to do with broadcasting. And so, kind of by it's second nature for me to kind of go and try to find out a little bit more about you. And uh, one of the things I realized is you're just a couple of years out of college, and I have to say, you've got quite a resume for someone who who is uh, you know uh, very uh, you know just shortly removed from uh, the college scene and you know you're probably not even 25 yet and you've already got all these credits uh, going for you and, and the other thing I have to say I admire for someone uh, so young that's kind of uh, broken out into the uh, the world of sports journalism is that uh, two things I was not necessarily expecting from from someone so young was uh, one your uh, the fact uh, that uh, oh, 
I just hey, I just blanked out for a second, which does happen on these podcasts from time to time. But uh, no, no. One of the things was uh, the the fact I I went to some of your long form articles that you wrote for uh, say like Vice Sports and uh, uh, the Atlantic. And uh, first of all, the fact someone so young into long form journalism that seems to be kind of a rarity these days in sports media. And then the other thing uh, is that your favorite sport is baseball, which is also not something you see from from a lot of uh, younger folks. <laughs> Well, that is true. Uh, the the 23-year-old baseball fan sometimes feels like an endangered species, but uh, no, I love it. It's been my favorite sport since I was something like eight years old, so that's not going to change. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I got to ask, uh, you know, what uh, what first drew you uh, to the uh, to the sport itself? Because again, I I think most young younger people, people your age, uh, really don't get into the sport because of uh, uh, its pacing and its slowness and just well in general. So I, I just wonder what uh, drew you to the sport at such a young age. Yeah, part of it I think is just so I grew up in um, West Hartford, Connecticut, and um, the Hartford area is right on the fault line between the uh, Yankee Red Sox rivalry. Mm. And um, it was very intense, you know, so I, maybe I shouldn't admit this uh, on your podcast, but I did grow up a Yankee fan, and it was like going into elementary school, it was almost like, you know, all the bragging rights were on who won the Yankee Red Sox game the, uh, the night before. I remember uh, during those ALCS uh, series in 2003 and 2004, you know, if the Yankees had won the night before, I was going into school with my shoulders puffed up, held up, my head held high, and if they lost, you know, it was devastating. And I think that that whole experience was probably part of what um, made me like baseball. It was just like a really fun place to be a baseball fan. Um, and that rivalry was just like, I don't know, so energetic, so fun. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, and of course now you've just admitted to us that uh, you uh, have chosen the uh, the wrong side of the rivalry, at least for those of us here in the Boston area, being a Yankee fan. I imagine uh, you know going to school in, in West Hartford, Alex, that you know it must have been literally split down the middle between Red Sox and Yankee fans. I don't think there was a majority either way. I would think, right? Well, I always say that um, when I was very young in the early two thousands, it felt like. 60-40 Yankee fans, and then something happened in 2004, and all of a sudden it became 60-40 Red Sox fans. Uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly what that was about, but uh, it did seem like the dynamic changed a little bit. You see, that's the interesting thing, Alex, is that you had the opportunity at a young age to kind of choose because, like you said, uh, you know, the you know you could have been either Red Sox or Yankees growing up in West Hartford, and it would have been acceptable either way. And, you know, just around that emerging age where you really kind of pick up the interest in the sport, uh, the team that you chose, uh, you know, uh, the Yankees, obviously, the, the success uh, kind of stopped at that point, and the Red Sox started to own the rivalry, so to speak. Yeah, I kind of picked the wrong time. Uh, if I were 10 years older, being a Yankee fan would have been uh, much more rewarding. But, um, you know, many fans, I certainly shouldn't complain. The Yankees were in the playoff hunt, or in the playoffs, really, every year of my childhood, and they won a World Series in 2009. Um, many fans would kill for that, but I do think that... Uh, Bostonians have become a little spoiled with the, obviously the Red Sox have won three times, and the Patriots, of course, have been incredible, and the Bruins got theirs, and the Celtics, so, uh, you know, you guys have it, have it pretty good, pretty good. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, 10 titles uh, this century. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been good. Well, you know, one of the things I guess I would kill for in, in reading a little bit of your bio, Alex, is that uh, also for someone who is only 23 years old, you've already managed to visit all 30 Major League Baseball parks. I've only got into about half. Uh, well, I, I can't even say half of the current stadiums because quite a few of the stadiums I've been to, uh, they no longer play baseball at. But I've been to about maybe 15, 16 uh, baseball parks uh, across the country during my lifetime, which is a little bit longer than yours. So my question is, like, how did you manage to get to all those ballparks uh, yeah. so young? Like, where did that start from? You, you have really uh, done your research. <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed. Um, it started when I was about, um, I think, eight or so. My dad was going to visit uh, some family in Arizona, and he took me along. We went to a couple Diamondbacks games, and um, he said, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we did something like this every year? Um, we would go to a different ballpark or a different, it it got to the point where we were like planning trips, like, okay, well, we can go to both Chicago stadiums and then also drive to Milwaukee and hit a game really quickly. Um, so my mom, my mom is also a huge baseball fan. So my mom and my dad would take turns every year. One would take me on a trip. We did a Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Detroit road trip, um, a Bay Area road trip, and then we started planning family vacations around this. You know, we went to um, Southern California as a family, and we had to, you know, change the whole vacation schedule to make sure that we could get to the Dodgers, Angels, and Padres. So it kind of snowballed and uh, became something that just became, like, a big part of my relationship with my parents, um, and I'll, like, forever, obviously, be grateful to them for, for doing that. Because, um, obviously, it's expensive. It takes a lot of time. They have to take time off from work. Um, but, so, yeah, I've been to... Every city, a home game in every of every home team. Um, unfortunately, they've built some new parks. I haven't been to like the new uh, Miami or the new Minnesota because they kind of have built them more quickly than I can get to them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a cool, fun thing. I, well, well, yeah. I mean, the fa- I mean that is that that's a really cool story, and the fact that both your parents are, are such big baseball fans, I think, makes it just all the all the more special. And like, I, I got to ask this too, then, Alex. Are your parents both uh, Yankee fans as well? Did you join them, or were they Red Sox fans, uh, and you you went to the other side to rebel? No, they're both they're both Yankee fans. I'm not really the rebellious type, so uh, <laughs> I just I, I went along with my first ever baseball memory is watching the 2000 Subway Series. I think the very first thing I remember is. Mike Piazza throwing the bat at Roger Clemens. And um, I remember at that time my parents telling me, you know, we're rooting for the Yankees. And so I rooted for the Yankees. And then, uh, you know, from there it was history. It was no act of rebellion. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. And, well, yeah, so if that's your first memory and the Yankees won that World Series. So I guess I can understand why you started, uh, you know, that yeah. that in your parents' allegiance, I can understand why you wanted to follow the Yankees. So uh, I'm assuming Derek Jeter must be like your all-time favorite Yankees player. Or does that go without question? Assuming, yeah, you're assuming correctly. <laughs> you're assuming correctly. Um, I I always say I'll probably never revere an athlete the way I do Derek Jeter because obviously when you get older, fandom becomes a little bit different. But um, yeah, so Jeter might be my favorite. Joey's fight for uh, number two, uh, for wearing the number two jersey in little league and stuff. Or uh... absolutely. Absolutely. It was yeah. good because I was fairly small, and usually the Little League jerseys were organized by size. You know, the lower numbers are the uh, smaller sizes, so I was often able to get number two. Well, wow, there you go. Uh, so Now, of the current Yankees, who would be your, your favorite uh, player to follow? Uh, right, obviously your, your fandom not being quite the same as it was back then, but like, who do you enjoy following on the current team? Yeah, um, 
my favorite player now, it's probably, I would say it's Starling Castro, partially because um, I went to school out in Chicago, and my friends and I would go to uh, Wrigley games, or sorry, Cubs games sometimes at Wrigley, and um, at that time, Starling Castro was like the only good player on the Cubs. They were kind of a terrible team, but he was young and exciting and um, good. He made some all-star teams, so... I kind of liked him from that, and so now that he's on the Yankees and having like a really impressive kind of out of nowhere bounce back season, uh, he I guess is my favorite Yankee. I'll I'll resist the urge to say Aaron Judge. I feel like that's what uh, most people would say at this moment. Well, color me impressed. I I think the fact that you just brought up Starlin Castro I think shows what a true baseball fan you really are. Because like you said, the easy answer could have been Aaron Judge or maybe even Gary Sanchez. But you, you picked a player who probably is not maybe the favorite amongst uh, most Yankees fans. But uh, yes, certainly a talented player. And and like you said, you were fortunate uh, going to school out in Chicago uh, last year. By the way, I'll just tie in my own personal uh, story to Chicago here while we're speaking of the the Windy City. Last year, I went out to uh, Chicago and uh, did something uh, to that point that I had never done before, and that is go to two different baseball parks on the same day, Cubs in the afternoon, White Sox at night. I had been to Wrigley once before at another time, but never uh, never uh, was able to do the doubleheader thing, so I was uh, that was a little feather in my cap. I was kind of, and in fact, the fun part is it landed on my birthday, so I kind of saw it as, I saw it as like a message, that like I have to go to Chicago and do this. So, you know, and that was... Uh, that was a fun take. You haven't uh, in all the ballparks you've been to. Have you? Did you? Have you ever either done a Chicago doubleheader, or I guess other than like Chicago, New York, or L.A.? I mean, have you uh, ever done the day-night doubleheader and gone to like multiple parks? I don't think I've ever been to two parks in one day. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, the, the schedule makes it tough because they try to they try their best to schedule them so they're not home at the same time. That would be a fun fun thing to do. Now you've kind of uh, given me that idea. Maybe I'll maybe I'll look into it in the future. Well, I will tell you, you're absolutely right about the scheduling, Alex, because I had to research this for several years because, uh, yeah, I was looking at both the White Sox and Cubs schedules, and you're right. Usually when one team's in town, the other team's on the road, so it's very rare. Uh, but last year, around 4th of July, they were both at home, so it just they worked out perfect. Uh, yeah, so I'm yeah, glad. That's to... very cool. Had a, a chance to uh, to do that, of course. Also amongst your uh, your bio, of course, you went to school in Chicago, but you grew up in West Hartford. And uh, in your bio, it says you interned for the Hartford Current. So, as someone who uh, enjoyed reading your uh, your long form article on Vice Sports about the uh, about the potential return of the Hartford Whalers, we I, that could be a whole other subject for a different podcast, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, just the fact, I, I was going to ask, did you get a chance to meet Jeff Jacobs, the longtime columnist, while you were uh, interning there? I did. I only met him once or twice, but uh, yeah, I, well, I grew up reading Jeff Jacobs every day. Um, I, well, I can imagine, right? I mean, he was. I mean, I kind of. I mean, he's been there for years. I grew up uh, yeah. reading him as well. Uh, very, uh, very talented. Of course, covered the Whalers for years, and you know, really to me, growing up as a Hartford Whalers fan, uh, you know, the chance. You know, I, the only person who really covered them in depth was was him. So, and of course, the Current was the only newspaper that would uh, cover the team in depth to the to the point of you know what a true fan would want to look for yeah i think everybody kind of has their idea of what a sports columnist is supposed to be based on um where they grew up you know i have friends who are from here who you know talk about bob ryan reverentially because you know that's the guy that or dan shaughnessy even um like those are the guys they grew up listening to and for me or uh, reading i should say um and for me yeah um the current was the paper that i read since jeff jacobs was the guy um and all of them. It's a little bit sad that uh, the current has scaled back its uh, sports coverage so much. You know, they used to 
uh, cover the uh, New York and Boston teams more, and now they rely on other papers for that a little bit, which is a little bit of a reflection on the industry. But um, absolutely, I'll always have a lot of love for the Hartford Current. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, just uh, doing the math here, Alex, based on, on what you've disclosed your, your age is, and, and of course I kind of had an idea anyway, uh, the fact is you were unfortunately a little too young to get to really appreciate uh, the whalers at all. Did your parents live in Connecticut long enough where at least maybe maybe either your mom or dad educated you a bit on the whalers? Did they ever go to any of the games? I don't know. I mean, they were huge baseball fans. I don't know if they were hockey fans as well or if they are hockey fans. Yeah, my dad was a big hockey guy, and uh, I did go to a couple of games. I don't, I'm unfortunately a little too young to actually remember them, but uh, I did go to some games. My dad always tells me how he would um, buy me M&Ms so I would sit there um, and, you know, I made it from at first I would only make it through the first period. And then uh, before long, I was making it, you know, into the third period. But uh, then, you know, I was only a little kid when the Whalers left. Right. See, I could probably get your dad on and, you know, maybe we could set that up. I could do a whole other yeah, podcast yeah. about the reminisce about the Whalers and uh, all that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's strange, Alex. I mean, I grew I mean, I was born in, see, my Whaler allegiance kind of, uh, goes to the fact I grew up in Western Mass. And see, interestingly enough, West Hartford, Western Mass, I mean, I'm going to educate the folks who live here in the greater Belmont, Boston area and tell them that that uh, both of, well, of course, Western Mass is part of Massachusetts and Hartford, Connecticut is part of New England. I know most folks around here who, who grew up and lived in this area their whole lives think that New England stops at like uh, 495 or 128 right, uh, right, in right. some cases. So, But I can appreciate where you grew up. And again, having grown up in Western Mass, you know, one of the first pro sporting events I ever went to was a, a Whalers game at the at the Hartford Civic Center. So, uh, you know, even though I root for all the other Boston teams, when it came to hockey, I always rooted for the Whalers. And then when the Whalers left and I moved, you know, and I'm living in Boston now, uh, the question you probably could ask me is why didn't I ever, you know, did I become a, a Bruins fan? But it would be kind of like uh, the comparison would be here. You're a Yankees fan. You live in Boston now. You're not a Red Sox fan just because you live in Boston. You, because you look at the Red Sox as, you know, the sports enemy. And that's how I, as a Whaler fan growing up, I used to use the Bruins as the sports enemy because, you know, they, you know, they were the rival, the biggest rival for the Whalers. And so I couldn't just turn around and start rooting for them. Yeah. It's funny you were asking why I got into baseball. It's funny how things could have been so different if the Whalers had stayed. Maybe I would have been a diehard hockey fan instead. Hockey is kind of um, down the list on sports that I follow, but it just kind of goes to show that so much of our fandom generally um, is luck, happenstance, being at the, a certain place at a certain time. Um, it's all kind of unscientific. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Uh, by the way, just for those of you who might be popping into the uh, into our Toddcast in the middle somewhere, this is a TOST Toddcast. I'm Todd Bloniers, and being joined by uh, Alex Putterman from AwfulAnnouncing.com. You can find him. Uh, he tweets at Alex. It's at Alex Putterman, P-U-T-T-E-R-M-A-N. Uh, and, of course, uh, we're going to uh, link our uh, podcast here uh, uh, on our Twitter feed, which is at TOSTBMC, uh, when we, uh, shortly after we're, we're done recording. But, uh, uh, you know, so I, I wanted to say, you know, just about the Whalers really quick, Alex. I, I enjoyed that article that you wrote for Vice Sports, uh, a nice in-depth story. I'm kind of agreeing with you. I don't think uh, Hartford is ever going to get a team back. And, you know, they were probably fortunate to have the team that they did in such a small market. And you mapped that out very well. That was a really well-written piece that you uh, that you uh, that you had there. So uh, yeah, no, it was uh, that's kind of was another reason I wanted to sort of uh, you know set this up and have you on as a guest here. 
Uh, so now you, you obviously you grew up in West Hartford, and you know, of course, that's just a, a stone's throw away from Bristol, Connecticut, which is where I'm going to try to do the segue into sports media here. You're just down the road, growing up from the uh, the uh, you know ESPN studios. I'm assuming you know, as, as at some point in your life, you must have gone on a tour, uh, been over to those studios, right? I did, I did. I forget exactly how old I was, but I remember I guess through a friend of a friend or something, I got a tour, and um, it was so cool. As somebody who obviously, like all sports fans, watched a ton of ESPN, just you know, walking through and you know, oh my God, there's Herm Edwards and there's um, Mark Schleiritz and there's you know whoever. Yeah. Um, it really is kind of like those. Uh, this is Sports Center commercials where you just have uh, people you recognize from TV just you know walking around everywhere. Now, was that something else? Like you know, the fact that you you grew up so close to ESPN was that something else that got you interested in in pursuing a, a career in sports journalism? Um, maybe. I'm not really sure about that. Um, def- definitely could be. It was definitely always kind of, um, you know, I was always aware of that. But, um, yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. Well, okay. Well, we'll just we'll move right on. I kind of wanted to set up the ESPN topic to talk a little bit about uh, the state of sports media today, and maybe specifically ESPN itself. Uh, obviously, if you uh, folks uh, listening to our podcast, if you're not familiar with awfulannouncing.com, you're probably not the uh, sports media geek that I am, and you don't necessarily care about all those little uh, machinations and and details about uh, about the world of sports media. But it's a good website for that, and uh, it, it you know the name's a little misleading. It's kind of more informative than it, it is kind of a, a site that blasts announcers, although certainly that that's uh, sometimes the case on that site as well. But, uh, you know, I, I need to ask you this, Alex, as someone who, who works on that website, you write for it, you edit on that site. Uh, what are your thoughts about the state of ESPN today? Obviously, you know, earlier this year, there were some some massive budget cuts there, which have sort of been a, a kind of an ongoing process the last few years. And uh, what do you think about, you know, what's happening to ESPN, how it's maybe changed, how how maybe just the fact that people are consuming sports in so many different ways. And, you know, what do you think is ESPN's future? Because they still seem to be kind of trying to figure that out. The days of the Sports Center highlight show, you know, the maybe what at least what I grew up watching uh, is not uh, the same anymore. Yeah, um, I think for a while now ESPN has been trying to figure out what the next model is, and that's why you're seeing a lot of personality-driven sports centers as opposed to the traditional highlight shows, although some people will point out that Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann certainly had a lot of personality when they were anchoring SportsCenter uh, back in the 90s. But so I think they're trying to figure out how to make it work because you no longer need to wait until 6 p.m. or 11 p.m. or 6 a.m. to get your sports news because it's on. It's in your pocket. It's on your phone. So the highlight show definitely um, is a bit of an outdated concept, I think. And the other big problem, obviously, that ESPN faces is cord cutting. Um, maybe I'd get in some trouble for saying this, but I don't have cable. Um, I don't really feel I, I need to. I uh, have Netflix, and I have um, I use my parents' password to get on to watch ESPN and everything. <laughs> so there are, there are many, many, many people like, like I am who don't have cable, and that ends up um, hurting the bottom line of not only ESPN but every cable company, and they all kind of have to figure out how they're going to deal with that. And ESPN has tried a bunch of things. Most recently, they've tried laying off a bunch of people, which probably was as much about just sending a message um, to stockholders and to um, just the public that, um, you know, this is the situation. It's probably as much about that as it is about 
actually saving money because the salaries of all those people are kind of a drop in the bucket. But it was still a bummer. A lot of those writers were people who I've read and followed, and you know, frankly, it, it sucks to see uh, people losing your losing their jobs, especially when they're people who you like and who you think do a really good job. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's no question. No, I'm sure. Like you said, Alex, I think that if you added up all the salaries that uh, ESPN cut. Uh, it probably doesn't even add up to what they paid to broadcast, say, one week of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Monday Night Football or something, you know, as uh, part of their their cable deal or maybe like uh, a week's worth of uh, baseball games. And, you know, and that gets to the reason why they did some of the cutting, ultimately, because like you said, you know, people are cutting the cord. And, you know, truth is, I only watch ESPN now really to watch games. I, I'm not really into all the talking head stuff, and we can maybe talk about that in a few minutes. But, uh, you know, obviously the reason they've had to cut your or make cuts or streamline things is because, you know, the outrageous uh, prices they paid to to get the rights fees to broadcast, you know, all the various sports, you know. And, you know, when I look at them and their model and what they're kind of trying to do or evolve into, I look at other networks like, say, Fox Sports or NBCSN who are kind of trying to be like ESPN, but they don't have all the game broadcasts that ESPN does. Like, they haven't doled out money for all these rights fees. So they don't have that... They haven't even tried to put together Sports Center programs. I know Fox Sports abandoned theirs. NBCSN has never really had one. How do you think those kind of sports networks are going to survive in this current environment? Yeah, I, I think you know this round of layoffs at ESPN was probably not anywhere close to the last round of layoffs we'll see um, in sports media, which is kind of a uh, an industry that's always changing and people are always shuffling around and there are everyone's always experimenting with new models, or at least over the last. 20 years. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what the future is for those cable networks, but I definitely agree 100% with you that without the rights fees, I don't know what's really propping them up. Um, Fox Sports 1 got a lot of hype for trying to compete with ESPN, but in the end, they took the part of ESPN that people roll their eyes at, the kind of debate show, who can scream the loudest kind of thing, and made that the center of their plan, and don't have as many games as ESPN does, or anywhere close to as many games. Um, and like you said, they ditched the um, highlight show. So it's unclear. You know, I mean, we'll see if um, just debate all the time is really a sustainable model for a network. Um, the ratings aren't really great on those debate shows that they're trying to build their whole brand around. But, um, yeah, we'll see. I think I, I don't wish um, bad on anybody or any. I don't want anybody to lose their job. I certainly wouldn't want FS1 to fail because it's better for everybody if there are more networks. But I would be a little disappointed if that debate-centric model um, of everybody just who can have the strongest opinions, if that does turn out to be something that's viable because that will push everybody toward that. And I don't think anybody particularly wants that. No, I, I think you're right, Alex, and this is a uh, this is the perfect segue into, I guess, the uh, uh, the uh, time for my little Toddcast rant here, uh, and that is that I cannot stand these sports debates, these contrived sports debates. Who wants to sit there and watch these shows where people are just constantly yelling at one another and throwing out points? And like, what do you think, Alex? Yell back! I mean, you're gonna yell something back at me? I mean, seriously, this <laughs> stuff is just. I'm not the I'm not the yelling type, Todd. No, I know. Well, there's there's my point. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. I see. I knew why I brought John here for a reason. No. 
I can't stand that stuff. It's just, you know, and in fact, I think some of this is they're looking at the success model of sports radio. Hey, let me tie this into you a little bit, Alex. Growing up in, in West Hartford, you probably were able to pick up the, the, especially being a Yankee fan, I'm sure you weren't listening to Boston sports radio, but you probably grew up listening to the fan and uh, Mike and the Mad Dog. I mean, is that something that you, you maybe did in, in, in your youth? And uh, what do you think about the thoughts, uh, the, the rumors that they might, are you going to watch, let me ask first, are you going to watch the 30 for 30 uh, coming up uh, the, on those two or? I'm undecided on that. I've heard good things about it. Um, I did listen to them when I was a kid. As I've gotten older, I just um, I try to read more and listen less and um, stay away from, you, you know, um, on TV and on the radio, often the guy with the best personality um, is the guy who you're hearing or the most compelling or controversial personality and not the guy with the best insight. So I, I respect everything that Mike Francesa and Chris Russo um, have done, but there are many things I disagree with them on. I think I probably see sports a little differently from them. There's a generational divide there also. So um, I don't know. I might I might watch um, the documentary to kind of remind myself of the phenomenon. Like you said, I did I did grow up um, listening to them, but um, they're not. Yeah, they're not people who I who are part of my daily sports consumption diet. So it sounds like, and I know before we went on the air, uh, we were uh, briefly talking, Alex, that uh, you actually you live in the Boston vicinity, so uh, you you have the at least the access to listen to Boston sports radio. But I'm, it sounds to me like you don't do that. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't really. Although every time um, I I have some cousins and family that lives here, and whenever I see them, they kind of update me on what the latest buzz is on the uh, Boston talk radio scene. So I'm I've kind of kind of up on it Kirk and Callahan and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say Alex for, for the fact you don't listen regularly I commend you I mean I, I try I've been slowly trying to wean myself off of it and in fact I, I do find myself listening a lot less now because I I do feel that overall it's just evolved and you know I don't know Alex is it a statement of society that we just you know that the kind of sports meet you know sports radio that works the most is all this either screaming or yelling or you know the the term I'm using air quotations here that you can't see of course because we're on you know it's it's a radio podcast but uh you know uh hot take I mean everyone seems to you know or, or you know the, the the word trolling you know when, when I was a kid uh trolling was a troll was a little something that was under a bridge that you would you know you, you know in fairy tales now it's like somebody who who goes on sports radio and creates topics just to get everybody angry like everyone has to be angry and incensed and you know we can't have reasonable sports discussion and I, I miss that I, I think if sports radio had more of that I might want to listen more but it's just you know there there isn't and I mean you know is it yeah. I mean you kind of are... I agree with you I agree with you and there are you know there are some listenable sports radio shows um Scott Van Pelt I think is really good Dan Patrick is good um PTI Patrick especially tends to be kind of yep PTI um yep. kind of interview centric which I think is a little bit better um but yeah we definitely and certainly not just in sports I know we're not talking about politics here but in general you know we seem to reward that kind of um high pitched <laughs> dating yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it it is too bad. Uh, I mean, well, let me ask you. While we're just staying on the subject of sports journalism, what do you think your your long term goals are, Alex? I mean, you you know, do you want to? It sounds like you said you're you're kind of uh, you're not the, like the typical irate sports fan that you kind of see things on a, on a broader scale. What what do you see yourself at like maybe five ten years from now as like a, a sports journalist? What kind of career do you think you you might have? 
Well, I definitely consider myself a writer first. I've never been particularly interested in uh, TV, although I'm happy to be on this podcast. Um, and we appreciate that. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'd like to be writing. Um, part of the thing, as you kind of alluded to, right now I'm, I'm doing a little bit of everything because it's hard for me to really know what I'm going to uh, do long term. So I do some blogging, I do some news writing, I do some uh, longer form stuff. So I'm kind of trying to keep my options open because, uh, you know, you never know. And one thing that uh, I think rewards you in every industry, but sports media particularly, it's good to be versatile. So that's really what I'm going for. Um, do a little bit of everything and see see what sticks. Yeah, no question. I mean, if you could have, if you could have your way, if you could determine, and like you say, being versatile is very helpful. But w- would you, if you've got a choice yourself, would you like to try to go into more like long form kind of storytelling type of thing? Uh, you know. Well, I'll say that um, my dream job has always been. I used to read Sports Illustrated. Well, I still do. In fact, pretty much cover to cover. I've had to kind of um, cut back on that because I have a job now. <laughs> but you know, as far back as you know, high school, I was I was reading it uh, every week, and that has always been kind of like the uh, the publication that I hold that I hold um, up. And uh, you know, I always, I used to say um, if I could have one job in sports media, it'd be I'd be Tom Verducci. I would be uh, writing about baseball for Sports Illustrated. So I guess I guess if I had to choose any job in the world, that it would be something like that. Um, but you know. Shoot for the moon, you might uh, grab a star. Is that how the, <laughs> the expression goes? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, sure, sure. That sounds good. Correct, but uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that that's no. You're you're right there again. A reminder: uh, you are uh, listening to the TOST podcast. I'm Todd Blonairs, being joined here uh, by Alex Putterman from uh, AwfulAnnouncing.com, and you can find his work on a whole bunch of other websites as well. And you can follow him on Twitter at Alex Putterman. Uh, Alex, let's. Uh, well, since you brought up baseball, we'll stick on the subject of baseball here. Uh, you know, so you know, you've talked a little bit about your experience, I guess, being a Yankee fan, working, you know, working in Boston. I mean, you still, I imagine, you must still get out around town on occasion, you know, between all your writing assignments and, uh, yeah. you know. So what's it, uh, you know, what's it like being that Yankee fan? Is it, uh, you know, because this year, you know, it happens to be a year where both teams are very competitive, and maybe there are signs that the rivalry is coming back between the Red Sox and Yankees. Probably not on the same scale as it was, you know, during like two thousand three, two thousand four, but uh, certainly. Both teams have good young players, young stars, and they're both fighting for first place uh, as we speak in the American League East. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I just looked it up. Um, they're currently tied. The uh, Sox have played two more games, but as far as games back, they're uh, totally tied. So it is exciting, and I really hope it's weird because over the last decade or so, both teams have been good most of the time, but they've almost kind of missed each other. They just haven't played in the playoffs, or they haven't been good in the same years. The division race just hasn't been that close, and it would be so much fun if this year we could get um, a real heated return of the rivalry, which, you know, so far, um, the season is kind of on that trajectory. The Yanks obviously got off to that great start. The Red Sox have kind of been puttering along, but the Yankees have come back to earth. I would probably pick the Red Sox if I had to choose uh, moving forward. But um, it looks like we're headed for what could be a really exciting race in uh, September. And if the two teams did happen to play in the ALCS, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be just as um, tense and exciting and dramatic as those ones uh, 15 years ago were. 
Yeah, well, you know, maybe uh, is the case. Like you said, uh, right now as we're recording the show on uh, June 21st, first day of summer. By the way, happy uh, summer solstice to our listeners if you happen to be you're catching this uh, in the final hours of the day by the time I get this uploaded. But, uh, you know, you, you look at both. The Red Sox are tied because uh, their bullpen had a bit of a meltdown today. And uh, for the first time in 30 games this year when the Red Sox were leading after seven innings, they lost. They're now 29-1 and when they lead after seven innings uh, thanks to their, their bullpen and uh, meltdown earlier today. And uh, so let me ask you this, Alex, looking at both the Red Sox and Yankees. You know, what needs do you think they're going to try? Each team is going to try to address at the trade deadline coming up on July 31st. Yeah, well, for the Sox, it's got to be third base, um, which has just been just a total disaster for them. Um, you know, they keep throwing guys out there and they keep struggling to one extent or another. Uh, Pablo Sandoval looks like they're kind of getting ready to close the book on on him. He's now on the disabled list, but I don't think he uh, has many more games for the Red Sox ahead of him. So the name that everybody's talking about with the Sox is Mike Moustakis uh, with the Royals, um, who could be available. The Royals have surged a little bit and are now kind of on the periphery of the playoff hunt. But if they... Um, They've surged in part because they took two out of three from the Red Sox this week. But anyway, keep right. going. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. So um, if the Royals do fade a little bit and decide that they're better off selling... Um, Mustakis and a couple other guys are going to be free agents, so that is the one for the Sox that uh, makes the most sense because they've got a lot going for them, especially you know if uh, David Price can kind of figure things out, then that becomes a really imposing rotation. I think Porcello can be a little bit better than he has been. So I think third base is really just the glaring hole that they have. And then the Yankees have kind of a similar situation with first base. They've uh, With Greg Bird, he was bad, and then he was hurt, and now some combination of the two. Um, first, they've been using Chris Carter there, and he has been really atrocious. Um, I have a friend who texts me three times a day telling me how they need to get rid of Chris Carter immediately, can't let him play one more game. So I definitely think first base is going to be something the Yankees go after. And then I also think the Yankees could really use at least one um, mid-rotation starter. Uh, they've had some nice stories in the rotation. Michael Pineda and Luis Severino have been good. But I'm not sure um, with Tanaka struggling and with Jordan Montgomery, the rookie, probably pitching a little bit over his head. Uh, I don't know how much longer that rotation can really hold together. So I think they might want to uh, grab another starter. The problem for them is they're really looking toward um, the future. They've got all these young guys, and I think their plan definitely entering the season was that this would be a transition year. They would hold on to everybody and gear up. There's a big free agent class in a couple years, and uh, by say 2018, 2019, they would be one of the best teams in baseball again. Their success this year has kind of changed that. I don't know what their thinking is in terms of giving up maybe B or C level prospects to improve in the short term, um, but they're going to have to make that decision because I think they do have a few holes on their roster that uh, they might need to go into the trade market to fill out. Yeah, well, they did certainly, uh, you know, this. Uh... You know, I, I kind of went into the season thinking if the Yankees had uh, a weakness, it was uh, from their starting pitching, which certainly has shown up over the last uh, week or so. Uh, their West Coast trip not very successful, and, and currently, uh, you know, as we're recording, these Yankees have lost seven of eight, but they're still in the tie for for a first place uh, because of the good start. And yeah, no, I, I tend to agree with you, Alex. I don't think the Yankees are probably going to want to trade from their young nucleus. Uh, although, obviously, you know, trades they've made the last couple of years have been able to restock the farm system. So maybe yeah. 
yeah. you know, they take a flyer on maybe, like you said, some middle of the rotation uh, uh, guy because, uh, yeah, there there are holes. There's holes in that rotation, no doubt. Severino's pitched well, but, you know, Sabathia's, you know, was pitching well. Now he's on the DL, and then there are other guys. Uh, I want to get to your first base thing, though, for a moment because I have to admit I don't follow the Yankees as closely as, as obviously you do. Uh, Chris Carter, all I remember is that, you know, in, the, in one of the head-to-head meetings against the Red Sox, he had a big home run to help him win a game. And uh, so is he is he a defensive weakness or is he not really hitting at all? Because, I mean, boy, against the Red Sox, he looked pretty good to me. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's a great defensive player, but really the problem is is the hitting. Um, in the past, he's been a guy who hits you a ton of home runs and doesn't do a whole lot else. This year, he hasn't even really done that. Um, yeah, his numbers. Let me pull up his numbers real quick. As of this moment, Chris Carter is hitting two set or two hundred one with a two eighty seven on base percentage. Um, he has eight home runs in 181 plate appearances, so he has been really bad. I mean, those are numbers that if you were a shortstop who played great defense, you would still be kind of wondering about those numbers. But the fact that he's a kind of one-dimensional first baseman makes you think, um, you know, he, he can't really stay there unless he unless he really picks it up. He has been a little better lately, and you alluded to um, he had a couple big hits against the Red Sox. But they really brought him in thinking that he would be at best a platoon player and more likely – um, a bench bat, a pinch hitter type, and because of Greg Bird's issues, he's been thrust into the starting role, and he just does not seem at all equipped uh, for that. Well, is Bird planning? Uh, what's the update on Bird? Is he going to come back at all? I mean, do they expect him back this season, or uh, to be a factor even? Uh, yeah. So the the weird thing is that so he had he had this injury. Well, first of all, he was hitting something like 100 over the first few weeks of the season. And then he had um, an injury. He went on the disabled list for a while. And um, then he went on a rehab assignment to AAA. And he was terrible there again. And then they shut down his rehab assignment um, because he had a setback. So there's a big combination of um, he's either injured or not hitting at all. It's weird because he had an incredible uh, spring training. Um, People were really excited about him. Um, and then the season started, and it kind of just all went wrong. I think Bird will probably be back at some point, but given all the uncertainty, relying on him as the starting first baseman full-time um, down the stretch is probably a lot to ask since there's you know, so much uncertainty. And in the meantime, before he gets back, it's um, really a giant hole in our lineup. You know, How often do you see the first baseman batting ninth, and yet that is what the Yankees have? Um, you know, Chris Carter, Chris Carter is a nine-hitter for them. And they've been able to get away with it because almost everybody in their lineup is having, like, a career season. But that can't last forever, obviously. So at some point, um, they're going to need some production out of first base, and it doesn't seem like Carter is going to be the guy to deliver it. Oh, okay. Well, let's circle back to the Red Sox here. and You, you had brought up Mike Moustakis, and I guess I'll – uh, kind of try to fill you in from a Red Sox fan's perspective about that. Yeah, he might be available depending on what the Royals do, but, uh, you know, uh, with general manager Dave Dombrowski, uh, or actually vice or president of baseball ops Dave Dombrowski, I don't know if he's going to want to, uh, you know, you, you know. first of all, the Red Sox aren't as deep in the farm system as they used to be, and it would probably take a, a considerable, you know, prospect or two, even for a rental player like Moustakas, who I know is a free agent at the end of the year. The other issue is the Red 
Red Sox have a young third baseman uh, down in, uh, in Portland right now. Their double-A team, uh, Raphael Devers, who they think very highly of now. You know, short of Dombrowski going totally insane and deciding to deal Devers for a, for a Moustakis rental and maybe they try to lock up Moustakis long term. I, I guess I don't see that happening. So I think the Red Sox best case scenario might be, you know, granted, I, I know it's been like Abbott and Costello over at third base. Who's over there? I don't know. But, uh, you know, whoever it's going to be. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be a big name. I think they're going to, you know, it's either going to they're going to stick with Devin Marrero and uh, Josh Rutledge to kind of keep filling in over there, uh, you know, until they decide what they finally want to do with Pablo or, you know, they'll try to pick up somebody else up off the scrap heap uh, if, if, if available. Maybe, you know, maybe even like take a flyer on a, on a Todd Frazier who could be available at the trade deadline for probably a bit less than Moustakis. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's It's always tough when any team is trying to balance this win now versus hold on to your prospects. And Dombrowski has certainly embraced the win now attitude. He's, you know, traded all of these guys, as you well know, who uh, Ben Sherrington drafted and developed, and then Dombrowski just kind of sends them packing. Um, so we'll see. The Sox really, really do seem to be seem to be going for it this year, and, you know, for good reason. Um, although I think... Yeah, when you trade for Chris Sale, I guess that kind of, uh, you know, gets right, you right. in the we're going for it direction. The Sox are really in just great shape, um, both now to be this good, but also have this many young players who um, presumably will be good for a long time. The Red Sox are there are not very many franchises who I would, who the Red Sox would you know trade positions with uh, as of right now. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we can say that to to some degree about both the Red Sox and the Yankees, which, of course, does uh, I agree. what makes it more entertaining around here. Uh, really quick, as you look around Major League Baseball, Alex, let me ask, uh, what do you think are so far some of the biggest surprises and or disappointments uh, uh, so far this season as we get close to the halfway point of the season? Uh, yeah, well, from a team perspective, you'd have to look at the, uh, in the NL, the Rockies, the Diamondbacks, the Brewers. It's kind of been an odd season over there. Um None of those teams was really widely picked to make the playoffs. Maybe some people saw that Colorado or Arizona could have a shot. Um, and those teams have all looked really good. Um, I, I don't know if I really trust Milwaukee, just above 500, to really keep that going. But um, the Diamondbacks and especially the Rockies have records that, even if they only played 500 ball the rest of the year, they'd still be in really good position for a playoff spot. So you've kind of got to take them. Um, on a player side, I think is where there have really been a bunch of surprises this year. You know, you look at the league leaders, you see Eric Thames and you see Yonder Alonso in the AL, uh, or, yeah, in the AL. Um, you see Justin Smoke at long last having the year that um, people expected him to have. Uh, Corey Dickerson kind of somewhat out of nowhere. Logan Morrison has 21 home runs. And, you know, why does Logan Morrison have 21 home runs that Makes zero sense to me. Avisael Garcia. There are all these guys. I I know there are some. Well, of these... Aaron Judge, for that matter. I mean, I don't think anyone expected him to be this good this fast. Yeah, and the NL home run leader is also a rookie, Cody Bellinger on the Dodgers, um, and Ryan Zimmerman, who um, was left for dead last year. He was awful, one of the worst players in baseball, I would say. And this year, he has been literally one of the best. So I think even more than most seasons, there have just been a lot of players who have either turned around their careers or broken out unexpectedly. Um, it's been kind of a wacky year. Um, at, at the All-Star game, I think there are going to be a lot of casual fans who see, you know, Yonder Alonso in the, in the lineup and think, like, what? Who, who is that guy? Why is, why is this guy an All-Star? You know, where's Miguel Cabrera? But um, those are the type of guys who are really having good years. 
Yeah, well, exactly. So, you know, uh, getting back uh, kind of to just your general interest in baseball, Alex, and again, I kind of admire the fact that, you know, for, you know, you're, you're in the minority, you know, for someone your age being uh, such a big baseball fan. And obviously there's been a lot of talk even this season, particularly, I know Rob Manfred, the MLB commissioner, has been trying to address some of this, uh, looking at trying to change this to the game. I mean, obviously many Red Sox games uh, this season already have, have exceeded the four-hour mark, which is just uh, which is just crazy. But even just the average Major League Baseball game has gotten longer uh, over the last, say, 10 years. And, you know, they're trying to find ways to, uh, to make this game more appealing to more fans your age. Again, like I say, Alex, you're kind of in the minority here. What do you think are some of the changes that – that maybe you'd like to see so that maybe more of your own friends would, would kind of follow the sport and enjoy it the way you do? Yeah, um, the big thing for me, I would say, it's not even necessarily the length of the game, but as they say, it's the pace of the game. Um, I, w- I went to a uh, Hartford Yard Goats game, a minor league double-A team in Hartford um, a couple days ago, and they have a pitch clock there that um, limits the amount of time between uh, pitches that a pitcher is allowed to kind of dilly-dally on the mound. Mm-hmm. And that struck me. I know that the Players Association probably wouldn't be happy about it and pitchers would complain. That strikes me as the type of thing that baseball should at least consider at the major league level because what really bogs down a game is when you go 60 seconds, 90 seconds without any action at all, anything to even occupy your mind. Um, so I think that's the route that they should go. I fear that a lot of what they're trying to do is more about PR than it is about actually shortening the game, you know, getting rid of the intentional walk. I've never really been a huge fan of that. It, it really cuts off, you know, 30 seconds once every three games or something. It um, yeah. <laughs> seems to make a pretty minuscule difference. So I, I, I do think that they should do something, and I think the focus should be on um, between pitches. I will say, and this gets into back into media a little bit, they were actually serious about shortening games, they would cut down commercial time. And we know that's never going to happen. But for baseball to always complain um, or to say, you know, we're serious about the games being too long, but then um, commercials are two and a half minutes or something like that during the postseason when they're trying to promote the sport as much as possible, it makes you think that they're not actually that committed to that. Or if they are committed to it, they're more committed to television revenue. And, you know, that's their right to be, but it makes the whole thing yeah, no, I'm with you about the pacing of the game in general, Alex, because it's like even, you know, myself, I, you know, as I grew up a baseball fan, and even though I still follow it, I can't sit down and like literally watch an entire game from start to finish unless it's unless it's like a Red Sox playoff game or something. But even now, I like I'll watch parts of games and I'll tune in and out and stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, the pitch clock down in the minor leagues, I think, is a help. And, and actually, I think the way Major League Baseball and probably Manfred is looking at this is, you know, especially because you, you keep seeing all these young pitchers coming up, they may not have to really necessarily develop the or, or put the pitch clock at the MLB level uh, because what's going to happen over time, all these pitchers are going to come up through the minor leagues. They're going to be used to pitching with a pitch clock, so they're going to have a quick pace. And, I mean, you've seen some examples of that. I mean, the Red Sox had a, a starter recently, Brian Johnson, who got called up from the minors and had to make a couple spot starts. And everyone was just going, it's amazing what kind of pace he's working at. And I'm thinking, well, the last two or three seasons, the minor leagues have been using these pitch clocks, so he's just already used to it. He's, he's conditioned himself. So when he gets to the major leagues, it's not like he's going to slow down. He's going to pitch the, 
at the pace that he's comfortable with and what he's been kind of used to now. And I think that's going to be the goal here. I think they're going to try to just pound it into all these minor league pitchers, these young pitchers, and then as they make their way up to the major league level, hopefully they're just going to it's going to be conditioned in them to just work at a quicker level. So maybe they don't necessarily have to implement that same kind of uh, a pitch clock restriction in the major leagues. Maybe they still will, but I'm just saying it's 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 going to even if they don't over time it's going to evolve where most pitchers are going to be working quicker anyway yeah that's actually a really excellent point i hadn't uh i hadn't thought about that but i think you're you're totally right that if that's what pitchers are used to in the minor leagues they'll probably uh bring that to the major leagues and you know eventually the generation of pitchers who pitch really slowly will start to uh start to retire and then yeah maybe that will cut off a few minutes from the game but i agree with you that um you know, I'm a pretty hardcore baseball fan, as you can tell, but I tend to watch, uh, you know, with my computer in front of me, also scrolling through Twitter, or also reading an article, or also, you know, doing something else. Um, you know, in, in the playoffs, I think my attention uh, goes up a little bit, but I, I even I think that um, it can be a little bit hard to, you know, focus on a baseball game for a whole three hours. Unless you're at the game itself, right? I mean, and of course, having been to all the ballparks you have. Right. Well, because then you have kind of other stimulus to uh, stimuli to uh, distract you, you know, and people to talk to. There's, there's a lot. There's right. a lot going on. You know, I didn't ask you this when we were talking about ballparks earlier. And the fa- you know, again, I, I envy the fact you've been to so many. Uh, what's uh, what's your favorite amongst all the parks you've uh, major league parks you've been to? Yeah, I was waiting on that question. Yeah, my apologies. You know, I, 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 you know, I was kind of making. I had a little outline here, and I just for whatever reason didn't. Uh, I had it listed in the outline, and then it just blew past the question. <laughs> my bad. Go ahead. So, what are your what are your favorites here? Yeah, it's fine because I find it really hard to pick favorites, so I don't, I don't necessarily like look forward to picking. But I, I think you kind of have to separate Wrigley and Fenway, and to some extent Dodger Stadium and the old Yankee Stadium when it was up from the rest because they're, it's just a totally different feel. Um, in, usually in a good way, going to games at those older parks. And I love the history of it. I'm a bit of a baseball history nerd. And so Fenway and Wrigley are maybe my two favorite places to go to a game. But I think when you're making a list, you almost have to separate those from the newer ones. And among the newer ones, the two that stand out um, are Pittsburgh, PNC Park, and uh, San Francisco's AT&T Park. Both um, are right along water and just awesome views. Um I think it's really cool when you can kind of incorporate something that defines a city into the park. So for the park in San Francisco, the bay, which is maybe the thing most identifiable about San Francisco, is right there, um, especially if you're sitting along the third baseline. You know, you're, you're looking at it the whole time, and occasionally home runs go in there, and that's pretty cool. And then Pittsburgh, you've got the whole skyline. Uh, the Roberto Clemente Bridge out in center is really distinctive. So um, those two, I think... Uh, are probably my favorites among the, the newer class of parks. Of the 15 or 16 parks I've been to, Alex, I've been fortunate enough that both Pittsburgh and San Francisco are on that list, and I would definitely agree with you on, on both fronts. Uh, I went to both parks on just uh, perfect days for baseball, and I, I also want to throw in a little mention there, too. I don't know if you've been to the – well, obviously you have the Seattle ballpark, Safeco Field. I, I would add that in amongst the newer parks as well yeah. uh certainly a nice one especially if you go in, in the evening you go down the third baseline you can watch the sunset over puget sound which is just you know it's it, 
You know, it, it, it's uh, really a, a nice, uh, it, you know, it, it's a breathtaking experience. I was trying to, with, I was going to like refrain from saying that, but it really, it, it's, you know, one of those, uh, you know, like you said, looking out at the Bay in San Francisco, kind of uh, uh, the same thing there. And I'm, you know, I'm certainly the older parks, no question. Fenway and Wrigley have not been to Dodger Stadium. I'm kind of mad at myself that I, I didn't get out there uh, during the Vin Scully era or even like last year, the Red Sox were out there, but I, I, I decided to go to Chicago instead and do the, do the two for double header thing thing and uh you know just only only so only time for so many trips in a season or a year uh what about your least favorite parks alex of, of all the ones you've been to is there any that you just you know you'll never go back to again even even if you were happen to be wandering through that uh city <laughs> well yeah there are a few that stand out in a bad way um the old marlins park was bad and i can say that because it's you know it's gone now but that was a football stadium that, that they were playing baseball in and it was well, gross. It, the, the, the stadium itself's not gone it's just they've got their own baseball park now but uh, yeah the dolphins still play they're the football team oh yeah yeah, yeah. good point so, Sorry yeah. about that but that's um, okay. yeah that's okay I, i've been to that park because uh uh yeah, for a while my my mom was living down in florida and so yeah i had a chance to i've actually been to that park to see the dolphins play the patriots and to see the marlins uh, you know, play baseball too. So. Yeah. And I'm sure it's fine for Dolphins games, but the baseball yeah. game in a football stadium is not very appealing. Oakland has kind of the same dynamic, um, although I found the Oakland experience kind of fun. The fans are, like, very into it there, but structurally the park is definitely not great. And then I'm glad that most of the indoor parks are gone, but um, Tropicana Field is still domed in Tampa um, without the retractable roof that you see on a bunch of them. And uh, watching baseball inside just isn't isn't quite the same. No, no, I definitely agree with you there. I have not been to Tampa's uh, field, but uh, I did get a chance uh, before they, they totally shut down, before the Expos actually moved to Washington. Uh, I went up to Montreal and went to that place, which I bet is even worse than Tampa, just as far as, the you know, not having been to Tampa, but the smell of that ballpark in Montreal, <laughs> like between the stale beer and I guess all the circus events they used to hold there. The place just, oh, it just had this stench that just hovered. And, of course, you know, the, that roof, they you know, it, it was damaged years ago. So they, it was the plan was it was supposed to be a retractable roof stadium, and then they couldn't open that roof. So then all that just stench just kind of stayed in there. And in the, the final years of that place, oh, God, it was just a, yeah, the, the you know, you could almost, you almost thought you were seeing some kind of a, like a haze or a smog when you were in that, uh, in that place, so that, uh, yeah, I never, I never made it to that one, and I had kind of always regretted it, because it would have been cool, just since obviously the expos no longer exist, it would have been cool to get to their park, but based on what you're saying, I guess. Yeah, you didn't miss much, <laughs> and, and you've been to Tampa, so, and I haven't, but I'm guessing it's, it's pretty similar, minus the smell, so there you go, but, <laughs> uh, hey, at least, you know, you got, like, the manatee, you got, or the, uh, the ray, the, the devil rays there, or the, the, you know, swimming out in the uh, in the outfield and uh, you know the the quirky catwalks and and stuff. But uh, actually, you, you were talking about retractable roofs really quick. Uh, you know, another nice thing they do in Seattle. I, I the the time I was out there was actually right around this time of year when uh, June's a good month to go to Seattle. By the way, because it never it doesn't rain in June. That's a beautiful month to go visit the city. Uh, but here's what they did, uh, or this is what they do. I don't know if they still do this, but uh, they uh, people go out there because they want to watch the roof open and close. Uh, you know, the weather was so nice when I when I was out there, they the roof stayed open all the time. But after the game ends, they actually close the roof, and uh, one of the ushers explained they do this for the fans or the, the folks coming in from out of town so they can get to see the roof close. 
Ah, interesting. And you know, and then they play like goofy songs, like up on the roof, and any song that has the word roof in it, they play while they're doing this, just uh, you know, a little ritual. And uh, you know, I thought it, I thought it was kind of funny. I stayed around after the game just to kind of watch them close the roof. I said, oh, "That's cute, whatever." That is <laughs> funny. I, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, kind of a nice part of it. Hey, you also mentioned you uh, recently went to a Hartford Yard Goats game, and I am planning to make that trip uh, myself soon. I I know they're doing some promos later in the season that tie into the Whalers, so I was kind of thinking of maybe waiting and going down during one of the, the Whaler promotions. Uh, I know they have the team colors of the Whalers, the green and blue. Uh, tell me a little bit, what was that ballpark experience like? And I, I ask only because it took them so long to finish building that park, and uh, now they're finally starting to play games there after they had to spend a whole season like on the road uh, trying to find a place to play. Yeah, it was a nice experience. I think maybe in part just because the team is, this is the first year that they've been there. Um, a lot of fans went on Sunday afternoon on Father's Day, and it was, Probably a sellout or pretty close to it. Um, yeah, it's a nice, a nice park structurally. Um, you know, pretty much your your standard uh, minor league park, I would say. But you know, I liked the uh, the experience, and I also just thought it was cool that it was Hartford because, as we've kind of alluded to, Hartford has kind of a snake bitten uh, history with sports teams, and for them to have this park open after all the drama, and you know, I don't know that the park is actually worth the trouble for Hartford, but you know. Now it's there, they have it, there's no getting rid of it, so, uh, you know, I'm going to enjoy it, and I, I did have a nice time, I was glad, I was glad to be there. Yeah, I was going to say, what a perfect way to spend Father's Day with your dad, you know, going to take him, you know, going to the ball game and stuff. You know, I'm sure your dad has also probably regaled you with some stories, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, he used to go to Whalers games, and you, you know, he took you to one when you were very, very small, but... Uh, you know, the fact is, downtown Hartford and, you know, it, the, the whole experience down there is just not the same since the Whalers left. I mean, they're trying to bring people downtown. I, I don't know if the ballpark, the ballpark will probably help a little bit, but I don't know if it's going to help all that much. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's kind of an unfortunate, uh, you know, kind of what's become a, of downtown Hartford. I actually heard, this is not related to baseball, but what... Uh, uh, what's the big insurance company that's moving out of there? I just Aetna, read that. Yeah. Aetna, Aetna. right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the insurance capital of the world, and they're about to lose one of their biggest, uh, uh, you know, the biggest insurance companies in the world uh, is moving their, their main headquarters out of there. So, uh, yeah, that's just kind of probably a state of Hartford in general. Uh, all right, well, let's let's switch gears really quick. I, I know we're kind of, I, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. Uh, I wanted to get into a little bit of, like, NBA draft talk. I mean, I know basketball is probably, you know, you're a baseball guy, not as much of a basketball guy, but the NBA draft is tomorrow, and it looks like there's an awful lot of intrigue going on, uh, you know, as we're, I'm sorry, we're recording the show on the 21st, so the NBA draft is, you know, just a day away, and there's already been some, some trades, obviously, on the local front regarding the Celtics. You know, they have the number one pick finally in a draft lottery they win that pick they just go ahead and trade it to philadelphia uh to get you know to move down to the three spot and pick up a, a future pick which has a whole bunch of conditions tied to it i have to tell you as a as a celtics fan i'm not sure i'm i'm overly thrilled about this i guess i fell into the uh uh markel fultz hype uh, over the last few weeks and kind of was envisioning him in a Celtics jersey and thinking how that might be able to work. And then suddenly now that possibility is no more. So, uh, you know, I know I know Danny Ainge and Danny we trust around here, so I guess it'll work out. But uh, what are your thoughts on the upcoming draft? I mean, do you see any more big deals going down? And, and maybe what do you – do you see the Celtics staying with the third pick that they picked up? Yeah, and the Celtics are obviously in kind of a, a weird position of they're a, a good team with – some degree of title aspirations, but here they have this pick, and I feel like that's a, a hard thing to balance. Um, 
Yeah, I, I imagine that Danny Ainge just has an open mind about it. Um, if he gets an offer, you know, some people have talked about trading down with Sacramento. You know, he, he Danny Ainge has never been afraid to make a trade. So if he gets an offer that's appealing, um, I'm sure he'll jump at it. There are certainly good players available to them at number three, though. I mean, Josh Jackson, Jason Tatum are the names you're hearing uh, most often. And, you know, both of those guys look like, you know, very good uh, potential NBA players at a position that the Celtics, you know, have somewhat of a need for. So uh, I think, you know, it's a good position to be in when you get to finish with the best record in your conference and then get a top three pick anyway. Um, kind of a, a win-win, you know, it would have been great for them to keep uh, Marco Fultz, but, um, you know, to get some extra picks and then also move down and still get somebody who should be a good player no matter who they end up taking. Um, you know, it's, like I said, it's a good time to be the, a Red Sox fan with the uh, current team and also the future, I would say, likewise, the Celtics. Yeah, and obviously, with regards to the Celtics, the Brooklyn Nets, uh, the draft pick gift that just keeps on giving, uh, you know, the pick this year that they were able to turn around and parlay into, you know, that trade with Philadelphia. They still have another Brooklyn pick next year, which could potentially be, again, the number one pick, uh, you know, or at least a potential lottery pick somewhere. So, yeah, no, things are uh, are definitely, uh, you're right. I mean, the fact, you know, not many teams can, like, be in the Eastern Conference Finals and then be, you know, have the number one pick in the draft and, and be able to... Uh, to you know to move that around so yeah there's a you know you you look at the state of the NBA today and I know one of the big things that people are kind of complaining about I guess at least maybe here in Boston I'm sure they're not out in Oakland where uh, the Golden State Warriors could per, per chance uh, turn into some kind of a dynasty I mean right now they look far and away the best team adding Kevin Durant to an already talented team I guess will do that for you uh, but he has you know he just seemed to be the perfect fit and, and obviously the way they rolled through the season and then rolled over the uh, you know the, the Cleveland Cavaliers who obviously rolled over the Celtics. I mean, you know, what were your? Did you watch much of the NBA Finals? What uh, what sort of thoughts did you have there? Are do you think the Warriors are just far and away the best team, and they're so good that like everyone else should just give up for the next five years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. You know, I would not. I wouldn't say that everyone should give up for five years because a whole a whole lot can happen. Uh, you know, five years ago we thought that the Miami Heat would be that kind of dynasty, and obviously that didn't quite work out, but what's scary about the Warriors is you think, like, well, injuries happen, but, you know, anybody on the Warriors could get hurt, and they still might be the title favorite. You know, if Kevin Durant goes down, or if Steph Curry goes down, will you still pick them to win the title? Um, you very well might. So, you know, in sports, we always think we know a little bit more about the future than we do, but in this case, it is hard to see a situation in which the Warriors aren't the best team again next year, and in the finals, they really looked, you know, head and shoulders above the Cavs, who were the only other team that was um, considered a competitor for them, so, yeah, I don't know, I wouldn't say, you know, everyone should give up, but the NBA is definitely structured in a way where um, a couple teams, you know, are in a lot better position than everybody else. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, you know, with regards to the Celtics, I mean, they have a good young nucleus there. And a lot of the talk around here, of course, has been that, that maybe this is a good, you know, the trade that the Celtics just made with the Sixers to pick up another pick for next year and kind of, you know, kind of kick the can forward because Golden State is so great and, and Cleveland looks so invincible after what they did to the Celtics. Maybe the Celtics should think more for the long term. But at the same time, you look at, you know, the you know look, just look at the Cleveland Cavaliers situation. I mean, in the last few days, I mean, things have changed remarkably. That Cleveland team looked so dominant against the 
Celtics, and yet within a year's time, it's possible LeBron James might be gone. Obviously, they've had a huge front office shakeup. You wrote about the possibility of of Chauncey Billups uh, perhaps uh, coming in to to be their president, which would be a big loss. You know, bringing this back to sports media, a big loss in the uh, the ESPN broadcast booth. I think they'd miss him as part of their uh, their NBA coverage. And yeah, I mean, it's just you know things can change fast. So it's weird where you know at one point Danny was probably thinking. Danny Ainge was thinking ahead, you know, years and years in the future, and that's the way they want to set up the team. But, you know, maybe the short window, I mean, you've got Isaiah Thomas, you've got Al Horford, you've got some good players. You could potentially add a Gordon Hayward or a Blake Griffin to that. So, you know, and then whatever they might do with the with this draft pick uh, tomorrow night. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities here. And even in the short-term window uh, for the Celtics, maybe they're not as far away from the Cavaliers as, uh, you know, uh, some fans around here would like to think. Yeah, you would think that by now we would have learned to never think that we know what LeBron James is going to do next. But I think people are still talking about the Cavs like they're invincible. But as you said, um, he could be a Laker, uh, you know, a year and change from now. Uh, you, you never know. You never know what's going on in his mind. He's obviously not happy with uh, the Cavs' ownership right now. They let go of David Griffin, the general manager, uh, whom he liked. And the report today, there was a report that um, Cavs players were telling Jimmy Butler to stay away if he could because of the dysfunction there, which is certainly concerning. So, yeah, the Cavs um, may seem invincible, but you never know. The Heat, like I said, the, the Heat seemed invincible, and, you know, all it takes is LeBron having a change of heart, and uh, the whole Eastern Conference can be sh- shaken up. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I can't imagine that uh, he's going to want to uh, leave uh, so quickly, but, uh, you know, or, or leave Cleveland again. I mean, the fact is, I don't know how the fans would react to that. But by the way, right after, I think I did, I saw that same news story you did, Alex, but they, uh, I think about like, Five minutes later, the the Cavaliers shot that down, saying, you know, or that oh nobody was telling uh, you know Butler to stay away from here. So uh, you know, I don't know who was denying that story. Couldn't have been anyone in the front office because they currently don't have a front office. Uh, unless it was Dan, hey, right, unless right. it was Dan yeah. Gilbert or something. Oh, the NBA so, offseason is a time of uh, many rumors and. Uh... You never quite know what to believe and what not to believe. Yeah, right. And what Danny Ainge kind of started by making that trade with the Sixers, but prior to the draft, I mean, we've seen already a couple of uh, other deals being swung here. Uh, you know, Lakers and Nets. Brooke Lopez now going to the Lakers, and and Dwight Howard. You know, move into uh, was it the Bobcats? So I mean, guys, yeah, you know, guys are, are definitely uh, on the move here. Well, listen, Alex, I appreciate all this time, and I, I'm not going to take up any. You know, I know this is kind of. Uh, uh, beyond our limit, and, and there's a, so much more we could talk about. So let me just ask you this. You think you may be, I hope you had a good time. Maybe we could try to do this again at some point in the future. Absolutely, Todd. I had a great time. I really appreciate you having me on. And, uh, yeah, let me know any time. I'd be happy to be back. Okay, and and you know what? The fact that you're in the Boston area, maybe if you're sticking around here for a little while, maybe down the road we could uh, maybe bring you on the TV show if you're ever interested in that too. You're not too far from Belmont, so maybe we could uh, uh, talk about that as, as well sometime. Just say the word. All right. Well, uh, again, I uh, want to give a special thanks. Uh, again, you can check out uh, Alex Putterman's work uh, on both Awful Announcing and uh, The Comeback, uh, those websites, as well as like a whole bunch of other places. Just uh, uh, follow him on Twitter, at Alex Putterman, and you can check him out. And, of course, uh, uh, don't forget, uh, if you want any updates uh, as far as when these uh, Toddcasts are available for your listening pleasure, just to follow us on social media. We have a Twitter handle as well, at TOSTBMC. We'll have a link to this. And... Uh, well, also, you can become a Facebook fan by searching a timeout for Sports Talk. Once again, uh, thanks to uh, to Alex Putterman uh, for joining us here on this edition of the TOST Toddcast. And uh, 
until next time, we want to thank you for uh, checking out the TFT TOST podcast. Let's see if I can get that out here on the uh, the Belmont Media Podcast Network.